Hello and welcome to the Instec London podcast. This is Matthew Grant, one of the partners from Instec London. And I'm talking in this episode to Brian Sullivan, the founder and editor of Risk Information. Brian also publishes the Property Insurance Report and I had a chance to meet with Brian last year at his own conference in Southern California. Brian's been consulting for over 30 years and writing about the US insurance industry and is very familiar with some of the challenges that insurers have of using new data and analytics. And so as you can imagine, he has his own perspective on what is happening in SureTech. We had a great discussion about some of the opportunities he sees, but also some of the challenges and particularly the speed uh, that it takes to bring in new analytics and data to existing insurance companies. Brian, uh, good morning to you. Um, which, which part of the world are you in today? Uh, at the moment, I'm in Southern California where it's raining. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the temperature today in California is the same as it is in London, which is kind yeah, of, possibly um, very possibly unusual. Uh, so we we met a couple of times this year or last year rather, uh, both at Namek and then at your own conference in Laguna Niguel. It'd be be great to hear just a little bit about what you've been doing at Risk Informations over the last uh, I think twenty six years. It is well, I think you know I I came to insurance much as so many people come to insurance by mistake. I was covering international trade and. Uh, traveling behind the Iron Curtain, thought I was really cool stuff. And then my editor asked me to write about insurance. I proceeded to leave his office, gather my things, and head for my apartment because I thought, there's no way I'm doing that. Got back to my apartment in Brooklyn. Um, It's a note from my roommate on the kitchen table saying, leave your rent check here. I never even unbuttoned my coat, turned around, went right back. And uh, perversely, strangely, like everyone else who's in this business, I really liked it. I found it uh, infinitely complex. Uh, it's the confluence of money and public policy and new technology. It just, I don't know. It was weird. I liked it. And so uh, I continued my career there. I bounced around. I ran the American Banker for a little while as managing editor. I was <clears throat> ran their newsletter business, ran some other, edited some other newspapers. But uh, in 93, wanted, I always wanted to do my own thing, moved out to California and started Auto Insurance Report, which is a weekly newsletter about, you can guess, auto insurance, and Property Insurance Report, which is um, bi-weekly, comes out, um, uh, covers mostly homeowners insurance, but also commercial property. And uh, a few years later, started conferences off that. And it's, it's primarily myself, my wife runs our conferences, and uh, I have a um, former managing editor at AM Best, Leslie Han who is my managing editor, and then uh, very few other people contributing. Mostly it's the two of us writing like crazy. Uh, So it's been really exciting. Uh, I find auto insurance and property insurance to be endlessly fascinating, changing all the time, and uh, I'm happy to know that most of the major players in those markets either subscribe subscribe to the newsletters and come to the conferences. Yeah, no, I mean, I thought the conference was was fascinating in the sense it was a sort of a good antidote to the madness of Vegas, where you had, I think, what a couple of sort of two hundred people and a, a good mix of industry practitioners, but also, yeah, some of the companies in the space that are, are are really doing some some real real analytics and data that's changing the industry. Well, I I think InsureTech Connect, I think those meetings are amazing. Uh, that was like I don't know, it was like 
you know, going to Woodstock or something, insurance Woodstock. It's really exciting. Uh, the trick is to try and boil it down and have it make sense. One of the things that's interesting to me about InsureTech, and this was my first experience in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, is I'd be sitting with an InsureTech company, and when they were talking to investors, they were talking about disruption and taking out the incumbents and changing the entire world and and I'm thinking, these people are crazy because what they're proposing is that at all. And then an insurance company would come along that they were hoping to work with. And all of a sudden, the pitch became, we have this very specific idea on how to solve this very narrow problem with this application of this very, very, you know, high, highly focused piece of technology. And... I thought, what's the, what's the breakdown here? And it turns out that, you know, if you want money from investors, you have to promise the moon. But anybody who spends more than five minutes in insurance knows you can't blow the whole thing up. This is not like Amazon comes in and takes over. It's way too complicated for that. And so a lot of that early insure tech talk was just ridiculous. It was just silliness. But it wasn't silliness without a purpose. It was silliness in search of money. Well, I respect that. <laughs> if the money was going to be dumb enough to buy into this vision like Lemonade had, we're going to completely change everything when, in fact, they change nothing but create a great marketing campaign. Well, then, you know, if you want to send your money along? Fine. Um, so I, I have found the whole thing to be very, very interesting. But at the end of the day, those new companies, these new startups, have done a great job of attacking weaknesses in the insurance space and, and making them stronger. Finding distribution problems, finding risk identification problems, finding uh, losses that can be mitigated, and applying a smart piece of technology to that small piece of the giant insurance ecosystem. And the winners in this are not disruptors who are going to replace incumbents, which I love these new buzzwords, it's rather the disruptors, the innovators, helping the incumbents be better. And I think that that's, at the end of the day, that's what InsureTech is about. Innovative entrepreneurs bringing solutions to the giant players and helping them be better. I don't think there's an, an Amazon of insurance coming along that is going to replace bookstores you know, or Netflix coming along replacing Blockbuster. This is not the transformation. Instead, it's somebody bringing an idea to State Farm Farmers, the whole state, Nationwide, American Family, Liberty Mutual, Progressive, Geico, that kind of crowd, and those companies getting the opportunity to engage with smart entrepreneurs and make the process better. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are very true. I mean, it's certainly a slight game, I think, when people are going out to investors, they do need to to talk big and give a sort of big story but it, it's encouraging if you're seeing that sort of there's a sort of reality when they start talking to the, the insurers and in particular focusing on you know what are the real business solutions that they're trying to solve and you mentioned you mentioned a few things in there but I mean what sort of from a personal point of view where are you seeing the real breakthroughs with the access to new data and technology and both both in terms of the access to it but also there's a confidence question there as well if an insurer is going to use new data they have to be pretty confident it's going to be better than what they've been using before. Well, one of, one of the truths is, is there is not, I don't know any insure techs that are bringing new data. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are not many that are bringing new data. 
So you have a few companies that are doing a good job of mining the internet for information about a consumer. So some of my favorite ones relate to fraud. So I say I have a bad back and I can't work, but a company is scratching the internet and finds that I've won the bowling championship in my town or won a deadlift weight championship uh, for my region, you know, for weightlifting or was windsurfing in Belize or something like that. So that's new data, right? That's out there that we didn't have and we can use. There's precious little of that. Instead, it's a new way to apply data. So a company working with the mortgage companies, and I, I'm not going to mention company names here because it's not fair because these ideas are spread around a bunch of companies, but I'm in the mortgage process and every piece of data about the house and every day, piece of data about the buyer is in one place and has been approved. It legally exists for the purpose mm. of getting the mortgage. One signature says, may I use this data to present you with insurance prices? And the answer is, of course. Yeah, that'd be great. So now, instead of having to go out and gather it all, here it's in one pile and I can throw you a rate. So that's a piece of technology. That's a clever use of the existing data, which I think is more in line with what InsureTech is about. Or a Lemonade who's really only got two innovations. One is... One is that they just have a really good website. And not many insurance companies have a really good website. Now, that's not exactly an innovation, but nevertheless, it's applying an existing tool at a higher level than the industry is applying it. And the other is that they've created a marketing buzz around them as do-gooders, which is not true, right? I mean, State Farm gives away more money in, you know, in an hour than Lemonade will give away in its lifetime, but nevertheless, uh, they've got a consumer group that thinks, oh, I'm going this way because of it's a certain social thing. And that's clever marketing. And I think, you know, that's, that's happening too. But there's not much new data. Connected homes, that stuff, eh, hasn't happened yet, really. New data sets, not yet available. Uh, connected cars, no insure tech is doing a better job in connected cars than, say, Progressive is. The big insurers, way more powerful in that space than any insure tech. I suppose, you know, some of the companies that are helping them would claim to be part of the ecosystem, but they're not, they're not delivering the new data. So, yes, yeah, so on that connected terms, you, I mean, you had that really fascinating presentation on water shutoff valves with... Uh, somebody from one of the insurance companies who actually had installed about six shut-off valves in his house and had a photograph <laughs> yeah. of his plumbing system. And it seems that's a little bit like smoke detectors, where this, you know, smoke detectors, in theory, should be widespread and everybody should be using them to manage their fire risk, but in fact they're not. And what I mean, how, so things like water shut-off valves, where the technology is now evolving, it's becoming more practical. Do you, th do you think that's actually going to make a difference? People are going to start using those, or is it just another area where... Yes, in theory, it should reduce the risk, but from a practical point of view, people just, for whatever reason, don't, don't do it. I think that the end game is clear, that homes will be connected. We'll have water sensors. They'll be connected to shutoff valves. We'll know whether the house is occupied or not occupied. We'll know whether the alarm system is turned on or turned off. We'll know how often someone comes in and out the front door. All those dreams, are, I think, will eventually come true. 
But as someone who has dabbled with all this connected home stuff, I love buying those things. I, I, you know, I've got my, my Amazon Echo here. I, I don't want to say hello, Alexa, because she'll yell at me. Um, but uh, it's just really hard. When I was trying to get the people from Apple who are developing HomeKit and the people from Google who are developing Brillo. So these are the software foundations upon which connected homes were supposed to be built, right? So that it's the one app, everything runs through it, it's all centralized, kind of like iOS and um, or Windows or, you know, so... And when I talk to them, they're like, you have no idea how hard this is. We are not even remotely close to being able to talk to insurers. We can barely get the lights to turn on with your phone. And so I think we're years away from connected homes. I know that it's coming. I feel very confident. I have the same feeling about autonomous cars. I think eventually cars will drive themselves. But we're literally decades from that. So I think that uh, connected homes are coming, but very slowly. I certainly wouldn't have my venture money looking for a 10x return in the next four years invested in a home water sensor company. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that from some of my friends who are doing that same thing, but it's just going to take too long. Yeah, it needs that kind of simplicity of connection, doesn't it? Where, where the more steps you have to put people through, the harder it is to to be able to get it used regularly, I think. Um, something else you mentioned, Brian, that I, I thought was kind of interesting because it touches on the, the, the world I've been living in the last 20 years. On, you mentioned you talked about parametric insurance and how a, a similar theme actually it will happen but not not too soon but but looking at commercial and that's happened over the last 20 years in the reinsurance markets with the uh, ILS markets but, but what, what are you sort of what are you seeing in the parametric for commercial that you find I, particularly parametrics makes total sense to me a weakness of mine is that an idea looks good and I fall in love with it and I think this this should happen and I always think it's going to happen faster than it happened it, it always takes longer for innovation to reach insurance so whenever you see a good idea, you know, uh, always like quadruple the amount of time it's going to take to actually implement the market. You know, credit scoring came along in personal lines, and it took a full decade before everyone was doing it. I mean, a decade. It was obviously a winner. Everyone who tried it, no one failed. Everyone who tried it succeeded and saved money, and it took a decade. We still don't have bipedal rating for homeowners insurance at every insurance company. This is 20 years. So things take a long time. Parametric insurance is a nice, neat thing, right? If this happens, I'll send you money. We don't have to haggle over the claim. We don't have to go. There's a trigger, and we send you money. The slowdown has been that it doesn't fit the, the way risk managers think about things. It doesn't fit the way insurance companies think about things. And it feels... You know, there's a storm, but it doesn't impact your insured, and you're sending the money anyway. It's kind of mm. kind of hard to wrap your head around, uh, and it feels a lot closer to Las Vegas, right? It, it's not the meeting, but the actual gambling. It feels a lot closer to Las Vegas than it does to insurance. But nevertheless, the lack of friction that parametric insurance brings is such a wonderful solution to so many problems that I have to think that it, it it's got a strong future, but. And, and in commercial lines is clearly where it'll start. But it's been hard to get started. And uh, I think it'll, like so many of these things, it's just going to take time. If I could take a second and talk about 
I keep talking about how things take a long time. One of the criticisms of the insurance industry is that they're slow and that they don't like change and they don't want to adapt to new ideas. And, and that's used as the reason why things don't happen as quickly in insurance as it happens elsewhere. That is the farthest thing from the truth. The reason it takes longer for innovation to reach insurance is insurance is the most complicated business I know. I spent five years at the American Banker, managing editor at the American Banker, and then I ran the newsletter divisions. I met every week some CEO for some bank would come in. So I got to know banking really well. And I can say without any reservation that banking is for children and insurance is for grown-ups. I mean, insurance is 10 times more complex than banking. Uh, just so much more. And there's so many moving parts. The legal issues are all over the place. In the U.S., you've got 51 regulators, 52 if you include the federal government. It doesn't take a long time because people are unwilling to change. It takes a long time because it's so hard. No, I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Brian. I mean, that comment about banking is for children, <laughs> insurance is grown ups. I remember you made that before. And I mean, because so many people just tend to take the shortcut and say, well, the insurers are stupid or lazy. And you, you know, it's so true that it is just incredibly difficult to do it. And I, I mean, I, you said this sort of I think, well, earlier on in one of your talks about the themes is that yeah, everybody needs to get out there and just and just test test it and try it out. And my sense is, I mean, it may be different, but most companies now, insurers get it, that they need to use data and analytics. But the tricky bit is how do you turn that into a, a practical way of making a difference in a company? And how do you give people a responsibility for testing and innovation, even if they may not have any, in the short term, they may not actually have any direct commercial success? That's, you know, that is, uh, you bring up an excellent point. One of the big problems for insurers in trying to innovate is you say to an executive, mid-level executive, I run, I run a claims organization, right? I need you to experiment with new ideas. And I accept that the definition of experimentation is failure, right? I mean, it has to, you're trying something and you don't know. So by design, you're going to fail. Well, I'm a claims exec and my primary job is to take this open claim and make it a closed claim in the most effective way to keep the customer happy, to keep the lawyers happy, to pay the right amount of money, to not pay too much, to not pay too little, uh, with the right amount of staff. That's a really hard thing to do. And now I'm saying to you, in addition to that incredibly complex process, try new ideas that are going to fail and slow you down. So I don't want to do that, right? I just don't, you know, you're thinking, I got enough work here. I don't need to be trying these ideas and failing. A, and B, and this is something I've talked to a lot of insurance CEOs about. I'm like, how do you compensate someone for those attempts? So right now, I'm measuring my claims VP or EVP or whatever on how effectively they take open claims and make them close claims. And there's a thousand metrics about that, right? How much time they're open, the, the, you know, the, the settlement costs, how much you're spending on lawyer. I mean, there's a million ways to measure that person. And none of them include screwing up an idea that didn't work, right? So now you're saying to someone, invest some of your time in a project that will lower your personal income on some vague promise that the bosses will find your innovative nature worthy of compensation. I don't think I'm buying that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not making that choice. So it is very difficult. And I think this comes to the whole question of, you know, how do you inject innovation into an enterprise as complex as insurance? And I think that's, 
if I'm a CEO, that's one of my biggest challenges is how do I bring innovation into an organization that by its structure doesn't want to make mistakes? Hard thing to do. Do you think that'll play out by a number of these startups being acquired by the the big insurers because it actually ends up being a more effective way to do innovation by buying it in rather than trying to... Well, I I think some of them will be bought by... Well, yes, the answer to your question is yes. The, The better solution is to have an innovator on the outside testing and tweaking and losing and failing, and their compensation is built on the end game success, right? And so there's investors involved, and you're screwing up, and things don't work, and it breaks, and you've got to refine it and change it, and it fails and fails and fails until it succeeds. And then you cash out by selling. Half of them are, you know, a bunch of them will be bought by insurers, but a bunch of them will be bought by adjacent vendors. So if I create new data, right? I create a new data set, maybe this internet stuff, right? Will an insurance company buy that? No, Lexus will buy it, Veris will buy it, TransUnion will buy it, Equifax will buy it, you know, that kind of thing. They'll say, oh, there's a data set that we want to sell to lots of insurance companies. So we'll add that into our portfolio. And I think that that's, that's a likely path for a lot of these companies. Yeah, I guess various because we've seen them doing that that probably most actively of uh, yes, all the very- companies you mentioned. And what about with the wildfires? I mean, were you, were you personally affected I, by the I wildfires? I was not. One of the, in- <laughs> one of the great things about California is that, you know, California is a gigantic place. And so, you know, the, the closest fire to me was like 100 miles away. And, you know, the big Napa fires the last two years, of, we're talking 500 miles away. <laughs> so it's so funny people like, oh are you okay in california i'm like yeah yeah it's it's as if you were saying to me i know you're in boston is that fire in, in in new york is that a problem for you so california is a really big place that said those fires are changing the way people look at california as a risk forever because a lot of what's burned are not in wildfire areas I mean, everybody knows if you put a house on a brown hillside in Malibu Canyon that routinely has fire sweep up the side, that's a bad risk. But these were, a lot of these were, and and, and like Paradise, California, that's just a little teeny town in the middle of the woods. That was destined to burn. Um, But a lot of these were, especially that Napa fire, they were just track homes, you know, in a neighborhood. Nobody thought that was burning to the ground. We've had some of those issues, too, in the San Diego area. So I think there's a lot more fear around fire here, but it'll just, it'll be just baked into the rate. And it's not, it's not going to turn California into Florida, where people just flee for the hills, I don't think. Yeah, although it's interesting to see whether it has the same impact that the, the kind of big hurricanes had back in the 90s, and I mean, to some extent an earthquake, but they haven't had any of those for a while. But it is going to fundamentally change the way regulators look at rating and or, or rating agencies look at look at the risk from well, wildfire. Well, here's one of my favorites. California is a ha- highly regulated marketplace uh, for personal lines. And insurers have been fighting with regulators and the consumer groups who, who, who try to defend the regulatory structure that was set up by Prop 103 in 1988. And that structure says that rates have to be based on historical experience. And it has really undermined the use of, of modeling. And so just because the town of Paradise didn't 
burned to the ground in the past, you just stood there and you looked at the trees and you looked and you're like, this is going to burn to the ground someday. But you're not allowed to rate for that. The models all said it was at risk, but the experience said it was not. Yeah. And so you couldn't bake in it. Well, now we have two years of the largest wildfires in the history of the United States of America, right? Two of them back to back. And the experience factor is going to be off the charts. And so when I go to the insurance department, I'm, you know, insurance company A, and I go to the insurance department and I'm looking for a rate increase. Well, under the rules, I can actually justify, you know, like a 300% increase. And it'll be interesting to see how the regulators and the consumer groups respond to this, or if they say, well, wouldn't it be better to use a model that takes into account that it's unlikely to happen every single year, and so maybe we should mute the impact of these recent fires? It'll be a very interesting twist. But I think we've we've redefined what is possible in California for sure. Yeah, it does. It echoes of what's happening what happened in California with the Florida Commission as well in terms of you know, the adoption of modeling, but the kind of very high bar to be able to demonstrate there is a there is a risk. Um, Brian, the other thing you, you talked about briefly was, was cyber, and you had an interesting comment there, which was you said people should, there's still a lot to learn, get out, tinker with ideas, launch a product, but hope it doesn't sell too well, which I, I can sort of understand, <laughs> understand what you mean. But perhaps you could just talk a bit more about your thoughts on cyber and, and you know, where we are today. And you know, I, I really struggle with cyber because it makes total sense, right? I mean, the world is being connected. It presents a tremendous amount of risk. You look at things like the, um, the health system in, in the UK, which is just shut down for fun, or cyber attacks in the US that we're using. I think it was smoke detectors. Was it smoke detectors connected? No, it was, it was, um, it was, it was webcams. Uh, somebody just found a way to plug in and then blow up the entire internet. So, you know, clearly this is a risk, but it's been, when I talk to carriers, they have a hard time defining what the product should look like. I mean, they don't want to go out of business. So you have to define the product. But if you don't fully understand what a claim would look like, how do you, def- how do you create the product? And then, it can, you know, the primarily commercial buyers don't know what they're insuring for. I mean, data breach is easy. We all know what that is. But, but this other stuff, you know, someone's going to take control of the systems in my factory and make all the engines run full speed until they blow up. How do I even think through that? So I think my point at the conference and, and, and working with, with a number of people, it's become clear. You need, to, yeah, you need to start creating very narrow products, at least that you hope that are narrow, covering a very defined risk, which you hope stays defined, and hope that not many people buy it so that... Uh, working with the insured, the insured and the insurer together, wander through these early days to define what cyber risk is, what can be insured, how much that costs, how do we transfer that risk. And then I think an essential part of cyber is going to be more akin to workers' comp than anything else. When I underwrite your factory and I'm an insurance company, I'm deeply involved in your safety programs. I want to make sure the flooring is non-slip. I want to make sure your workers are wearing their, you know, their waist belts to make sure they don't get bad backs. I want to make sure the lighting is really good and the air filter is really good. I, I, I'm very involved in the safety of that factory 
to minimize the workers' comp claims. Well, I think cyber is going to be the same way. I'm not just going to sell you a policy. I'm going to sell you a policy, and then I'm going to have my hands with yours all over your operation to ensure that I don't have a claim. And I think that insurers will need to either have or connect themselves to cyber risk mitigation expertise as part of the policy. You won't just be selling insurance. You'll be selling a more holistic solution to cyber risk. Because if they're not connected, you probably will get run out of business some giant claim. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's also a great way, sort of partnership between the insurers and then the companies, the technology or the analytics, in the sense that it's it's partly a, it's a, it's a risk mitigation for the insurer or, or the, the brokers involved, but it's also helping the client with some analytics they might not have got access to otherwise. So it does sort of talk into the, what the, the sort of whole broader theme is around InsureTech or the greater, the more frequent relationship between the insurer and their client, which everybody wants to sort of increase the, the frequency for good reasons, meaning client support as opposed to more claims coming in. Exactly. I, I think there's a real opportunity there, but it, it's, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> I hate to make that my theme, but it's going to take a long time, and it's, but it's going to require a lot of testing. And, and, and the challenge, I go back to my earlier point, you're a bright, inventive person at a giant reinsurer or insurer or broker, and cyber sounds exciting. And the CEO's all hot for it. And so you think, should I put my career in that direction? But there's frankly hardly any money there. And am I ever going to get to run the company or a division based on my success in cyber? Or would I just be smarter to go to cat risk, which is a gigantic, well-defined market where all the money is? So it's, it's going to be difficult from a career standpoint and a talent attraction standpoint. Um, to get people to commit themselves to this. And the same thing is true. I'm at UPS and uh, in the U.S., United Parcel Service, you know, a big mm. delivery company, logistics company. And I'm the risk manager. And should I be involved in autonomous driving and driver tra- safety programs and things like that? Or should I involve myself in cyber risk? And... Um, it would be a difficult career choice to move to this new class instead of in the core thing. This is, and the reason I bring this up is this is the conversation I've had with insurers and with, and with insurance buyers is this, this struggle to apply talent to the task. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, cyber in particular, until at some point there is going to be a big, a big catastrophic cyber loss where yeah, it'll be beyond what happened with, with WannaCry or NotPetya where it yeah, hit lots of companies, but in a sense it was contained. And I think, in, but until you get that big catastrophic loss, then it does, it does still, it's still quite a very small part of the overall insurance. The rates go down, people are throwing in more coverage and you're right, it's very difficult as an individual to line your career to that, never knowing you know, when the loss is going, the major loss is going to happen. But when it does happen, I do think it's going to, it'll very significantly shift how people think about buying and, and protection. But Someone mentioned to me, they said, it seems hard to think this is true, but he says, there is a certain element of cyber risk that feels like Y2K. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole world was standing on its head. Oh my God, when, we, when it ticks over to the year 2000, all the computer systems in the world are going to crash. Elevators aren't going to work. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really a huge industry there for a while, people rewriting software. 
And either because we brilliantly rewrote all the software or because it was never that big a deal in the first place, nothing happened. Right? <laughs> Just it never came to pass. And so someone's like, you know, maybe maybe cyber risk is just a small piece of normal risk, and it won't turn into that. And I said, that seems unlikely. He says, I understand. It seems unlikely. But, you know, think of Y2K. This is going to be the end of the world. And it just didn't come to pass. So that's until we have, as you say, that big claim, or we see a sea of small claims, it's going to be hard to get cyber to develop. Yeah, and with the Y2K one, it's, you, there is a point at which if it didn't happen, it's not going to happen again. Um, cyber, you, know, you, you can never kind of breathe easy because you've passed a certain threshold. It's always going to be lingering out there into the future. But no, it's just, it's, uh, well, I, we're going to hear a lot more about that from both startups, and uh, I, I think we're going to see some more events coming that are a surprise to all of us. So Brian, just one more one before I wanted to wrap up. You, something you talked about, which was great to hear, just given my involvement with technology, but this whole area about... You, know, you said managing third-party tools is key to survival. And you had a you know, really interesting discussion with Karen Furtado on, on stage about that. But uh, could you just talk a bit more about that? Because that is sort of, it's obvious at one level, but it doesn't get discussed very often about how people work with their technology and, and IT providers to be successful. This is, if there's been one major change in my career, uh, which goes back my first insurance story here, I'm staring at it, it's hanging on the wall in my office, it was March 6, 1980, kidnap insurance, now big business. So I, I've been around a while. The single biggest change is we've gone from successes measured by the ability to manage internal data. That is my own claims experience, my own, you know, um, uh, renewal rates, you know, all the stuff I had inside to how successful you are at managing outside data and outside relationships. The winners are people who can engage data providers. So Lexis, Verisk, TransUnion, Equifax, that whole crowd, and can engage um, service providers. So in personal auto, for example, SafeLight, the glass repair people, or small little startups like uh, Snapsheet that do um, a very specific claim settlement with photo estimating, to how smart are you at managing, um, you used to run your own salvage stuff, right? Now you use insurance auto auctions and Copart. Uh, there's so many pieces of the business that are now outsourced to a central organization that can do it better than you can. And it's not an on-off switch. I have it or I don't have it. The gap between the best users of credit data and the worst users of credit data is vast. The difference between someone who makes the very most of their relationship with insurance auto auctions and someone who doesn't really pay attention is vast. The difference in the case when we were talking with Karen from Strategy Meets Action is the difference between someone who installs and utilizes a Guidewire or a Duck Creek or a One Inc. or a Majesco uh, system and someone who's really bad at it is enormous and life-altering. I mean, if, you, if you're bad at picking and installing and running one of these core systems, you're in a world of hurt compared to someone who selects just the right one carefully implements it wisely and then is a pioneer in the way they're used. This is the competitive battleground. Is not internal data management, it's external data and provider management. And does anybody track how insurance companies are doing that? Because as you said, it's such a big competitive disadvantage or is that just, it just kind of tumps through in the results? You know, that's, it, it, there's no data for that. But if you talk to people, 
the stories are legion. <laughs> you know, there's there's a top ten insurer putting in one of the very best core systems out there, and I don't want to pick on them. And it's taken them twice as long and cost them twice as much as everyone else. And at the end of the day, they're probably going to have half as good a system. Yeah. And why? Well, they're just bad at it. They didn't invest enough. They don't have the right people. They made bad decisions. Uh, they're going to have a terrible outcome. It's already a terrible outcome. Whereas other companies have, you know, have the skills, have the in-house talent, know what they're doing, and significantly outperform. And I think it, it's, it's, it's hard to measure, but you spend a little time in the marketplace, you'll hear stories that'll curl your hair. Yeah, and the difference is it doesn't have to be bad. It's not like it's not like writing a risk, and you know, at some level you're gonna you're gonna get a loss, and that's so be it. I mean, this is an area where if you do your work well, you can get a good team in place and, and get some good processes, and you don't need to, yeah, you don't need to be the person that's got the the highest cost and the least return on your investment with a bit of care. Yeah, um, good. So, so Brian, just sort of finally, uh, just given that a lot of what we're doing is is based out of London, not entirely, but and, and there's. Yeah, strong connection both ways between risk coming into London for uh, capacity and then also your technology coming out of Europe into the US. What's your sort of view on the big question, but maybe just in sort of top of mind for you, US market versus European market when it comes to insurance and, and technology and you know, to the extent you've seen some insure tech coming out of, out of Europe? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that the regulatory environment in the U.S. is more complex than in Europe. Just the 51 different markets. Although, you know, the difference between France and Germany is pretty gigantic. So it's hard a lot of times. So for the U.K., for example, a lot of people come from the U.K. to the U.S. and they're like, well, let's apply this really great idea that we've been using in London. And you're like, well, that's just not allowed here. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, so there's been a, a, in my experience, there's been a significant barrier to the transfer of, of ideas across the Atlantic. A really significant barrier both ways because the markets are so profoundly different. You know, it, simple, I mean, homeownership in the United States is gigantic. Europe, not so much. Um, so this entire market has developed here uh, that doesn't apply so much there. Car ownership here with more vehicles per household. So you have less miles driven per vehicle it completely changes the way you underwrite. So it's been, it's been difficult to have these things cross. I think that the areas that are gonna be successful are not the necessarily the data areas, but connected home, connected cars. I think uh, UBI has definitely been a cross-border success mm-hmm. because you have this foundational issue of, of, the, of the vehicle, right? Of the home or the, or the be it a owned home or a rented property. Uh, and those things have worked the best. And then, uh, you know, I, I, this has not happened, but I have to think that the U.S. could do a much better job of learning from the U.K. about online insurance sales. So much more sophisticated in England than it is in the United States. And a lot of the U.S., they're just like, oh, it's completely different. I don't understand the reluctance to learn from the UK market. I don't understand it, but it is definitely a truism here in the US. Well, Brian, that's been, been fascinating and, and really helpful. Uh, so just sort of just to finally wrap up, if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about what you're doing at Risk Information or the Property Information Report, what's the best way to sort of learn more? The, the easiest thing to do is our website is, is riskinformation.com and uh, they can find anything they want 
there about our newsletters or our conferences and I and, and some of the speaking engagements that I do. I do a lot of work with boards of directors and senior management teams, sort of day-long seminars. That's what I'm doing next week. I'm traveling to a couple of companies to do that. So they can learn all there, riskinformation.com. Excellent. And any plans to be over in, in the UK in the near, near future? Uh, I don't. I've been a couple of times, but I, I don't have anything on the calendar yet. So if anybody's listening and wants to bring me, I'd be happy to come. <laughs> well, it'd, be, it'd be great to get an excuse to get you out there and, and, and share, cause, share some of this, because you, you, as we talked about, you do bring a, a very refreshing uh, sort of balanced view of this and also with your experience as well. So uh, I think it'd be, be fascinating to get you over to the, to the UK at some point. But Brian, many thanks for spending the time. It's been great to catch up again. And okay. I hope to see you again before, before too long. And best All right, thank you. Your travels. Bye too. for now. All right, bye. 